0: School Guns, the podcast that tells you like it is. Anyway, this is number 78, number 78. So here we are again, and uh, of course, you know, the the political scene is always changing, and it's always um, kind of in, in flux, and, and now the, the flavor of the day is who is old Sleepy Joe Biden going to select for his running mate? And I would think the smartest one, there, there is no good choice. He, he backed himself in the corner saying it was going to be a woman, going to be. So that, that cut down his field precipitously. And the thing that has happened with that is um, he's under a lot of pressure to pick a black woman. So his better choice, which probably would have been Elizabeth Warren, the odious, horrible Elizabeth Warren, He's probably out. So that leaves him with a field of, of several several contenders. A couple of them I hadn't heard. One's the mayor of Atlanta. Not gonna happen. You know, just just not gonna happen. The other is this I, I guess she's from California, the one that likes that was talking about all this good things about Fidel Castro and communism. It's not gonna be her. So that leaves basically Harris and and Rice. Kamala Harris and Susan Rice. You know, he crossed swords pretty heavily with Harris during the before she dropped out because people figured out she was an idiot. Uh, her background as a prosecutor is not going to endear her to a lot of people. Uh, on the left. On the left. And, and frankly, you know, her uh, rather libertine ways of way of life before, uh, while she was climbing the political ladder is probably something that, um, I don't know, on the left, they probably don't care, but there's a lot of people in middle America that would probably not, not look too fondly on that. So I think he's going to choose Susan Rice, the Benghazi liar, who along with Hillary Clinton lied about Benghazi, the Benghazi attack in 2012, what caused it, who was responsible and everything else. And uh, so this liar, and and she actually paid a serious price for being a stooge and a surrogate for Obama. She went out and lied on all the Sunday shows about it, and uh, that cost her the job as Secretary of State. And then she became, you know, National Security Advisor, which doesn't require any confirmation. What she knows about national security, you could probably put in a very small envelope, because she doesn't seem to know anything about anything. But she's relatively articulate and outside of that horrible faux pas you know the four or five guys that were killed uh, because of the the way the state department and the government in general reacted uh she basically she basically uh is probably the front runner because she's so much better than harris and the other two are unknown wackadoos and it can't be anybody who's not black so there you go. That's who it's going to be, and uh, I don't think it'll matter much. I mean, nobody, everybody makes a big deal of the vice presidential pick, but does it really matter? I think people vote for who's at the top of the ticket, not who's underneath. Even though I think it's highly doubtful that uh, Joe will survive a term if he were elected. I mean, his mental state um, can't do anything but deteriorate further, and I don't think Either four years is an awful long time, and he's going to deteriorate precipitously. So uh, that's that's kind of how that all looks. Um, you know, the riots are continuing in a lot of places, but they're, they're basically abating everywhere else. Uh, I think they, they had a strategy which I don't necessarily agree with, um, and that was let them play themselves out. And, you know, part of that was these have been a political gift to Donald Trump. A political gift. If you're the law and order president and the police like you and you are, you know, John Q. Public and you see this stuff going on, uh, that's that's a natural draw as opposed to defund the police, Biden, and, and people who are at least tacitly, if not surreptitiously or even openly um, encouraging what I call urban terrorists and urban terrorism. Uh, when you have Black Lives Matter, all of these, uh, which is run by Marxists um, and really aren't about black lives anymore. It's more it's about something else. That's just a label that's on something else now. That antifa, all the rest of this. Uh, when you when you get all that together, you just have to put that under the broad category of urban terrorism when they're burning. I don't know if they're doing that much looting, but they're trying to destroy federal buildings, state buildings. Um, any kind of police deals. Um, this is all. This is all bad, bad business. And uh, the strategy of just letting it play out, I think, emboldens these people because they say, "Hey, nothing really happened to us last time," even though a bunch of them have been arrested. Face it, the people out in the streets are expendable to these causes. Uh, if you if they get arrested, they get killed. If they get killed, they're martyrs. If they get arrested, hey, they don't care. I think the people they have to start looking for are the ones who are behind the scenes, the ones that had the, dri- the uh, bricks delivered to certain locations and frozen water bottles and, you know, basically uh, making Molotov cocktails, all this kind of stuff. The people behind that, the money, the organization, all of that behind that is really what they need to go after. The, the people out in the streets are just expendable. They're just, you know, they're the grunts that uh, basically the power brokers behind the scenes have written off anyway. So we'll see how this plays out. It looks like Portland is the only remaining hot spot. But even if you go around where I live, you, there are places where you can go and you see windows all boarded up because, hey, they they don't know. They just don't know. Uh, it's not going to come out to a small town where I am, but if, as you move into the larger Larger parts of the cities, you know, hey, it's it's boarded up because it could explode again at any time. So uh, they've been emboldened, and I think that is a wrong-headed strategy. They should have been crushed, and uh, we'll see how it shakes. i tell you one of the most interesting emails I got last week, and this is, this is righteous, a uh, small ammunition manufacturer who produces very, very good stuff but I won't, I won't name them, but a small manufacturer produces really, really good stuff, sent out an email saying, hey, (laughs) a shortage of raw materials and supplies are coming, so if you've got any powder, primers, cases, stuff like that you'd like to sell to us, you know, contact us at this, you know, below email, and, and frankly, I was, I have never seen anything like that, even in the primer and, and ammo shortages starting from the assault weapon ban forward. I mean, nobody's ever, I've never seen a company ask essentially its customers to buy components from them so they can make ammunition and presumably sell it to their customers. I, I just thought that was, uh, um, I mean, it's, it's as comical as it kind of is, it, it shows a certain desperation and it shows the ammunition shortage is going to get far worse before it gets better. Uh, I, hope that, I hope that somebody has the brains to be telling Tull Ammo and Black Bear and all the rest of these guys, start cranking out 762 by 39 5.56, 5. and 9mm round the clock and uh, chartering a fleet of ships to, to bring it over here because it, that's what it's going to take to kind of normalize the market again. I'd also be going to Wolf saying, hey how many millions of primers can you make and i'd bring a bunch of those in too because primers are are going to be in short supply for a long time so we'll see how that uh we'll see how that all goes but uh it's pretty frightening when you see an ammo manufacturer putting out an open solution open solicitation like that uh really really let you know that it could be here for a long time and that will bring shooting and gun buying and things to a halt if you it doesn't make any sense to buy guns you don't have ammo for and can't get ammo for. Um, I think we could be looking, I I said last podcast, optimistically six months, realistically maybe a year before this gets all better. Alright, hey, the last, uh, last thing is Forgotten Weapons, some of my favorite stuff. They did a, uh, basically a, a kind of a shooting review of the armson oeg and if you've been around since the 70s armson oeg was this hot commodity i think it came out in the 60s and and it's basically the open eye aiming concept you know very very briefly it's you keep both eyes open and your brain will superimpose this red dot on this fixture on the other eye which is actually can see the target. So uh, it's actually a pretty uh pretty nifty system. Uh doesn't require any batteries, it doesn't require anything except some practice. And there are situations where uh it doesn't uh it doesn't work optimally. But, you know, for fast snap shooting the thing was the thing was legendary for Probably about twenty years, and especially when you go back to the 80s and you think about the early aim points, which I I still have a couple <laughs> kicking around in a cardboard box somewhere. But um, you look at those uh, uh, those nascent early aim points, and I mean, hey, they they had they took weird batteries. The battery life was short. When you fired it, the bat the uh, the dot would often uh, just go away because the battery contacts. You know, I mean. You know, the whole thing, the, re- the recoil would, you know, shift the batteries so they weren't making contact anymore. The dot would go away. All those bad things that you kind of associate with the early red dots were happening. So the arms and OEG was, was a pretty good alternative. Um, got some military use. I think it was used in Vietnam. Certainly the uh, South Africans used a lot of them. Uh, you know, probably in the in the Bush Wars, those things were used uh, pretty well. I don't, you know, is it is it perfect? No. Well, of course, the the forgotten weapons deal is, well, hey, you know, it's it's kind of a cool piece of equipment to use, but, you know, modern red dots are so much better, and there's really no use for this. Well, the arms and OEG, unlike a lot of the things that um, in-range or forgotten weapons will dog on, is actually still being made. And in the comments... You know, Arms in USA said, hey, if you just practice using this more, you will see that it is as good as a red dot without some of the, um, without some of the problems. You know, obviously battery life, it's obviously lighter and, and uh, uh, much, you know, a, a lot easier to mount on a weapon in many ways. It doesn't change the balance that much. It's, it's a good, it's still good. Now, is it something you're going to go fight ISIS with? Well, make up your own mind. But it's another one of those pieces of equipment, like the M16A1, in the nine-hole review we talked about, which, you know, you just can't go out there and sometimes pick something up, start using it, and make really informed judgments on whether it's a good piece of equipment or not. Sometimes you have to be trained on a piece of equipment. Um... Unless one of your criterion is, hey, this minute I pick this thing up, I got to be able to, you know, use it, use it like a pro. A lot of equipment takes some transition. We, we used to have something in the military called, you know, new equipment training. And it was transition training and you, regardless if it was a, a, a small arm or a radio system or even a vehicle, um, you had to have new equipment training to make sure that you were using it to its, its fullest potential. And some of these guys kind of forgot that they just sort of you know, this thing shows up in the mail and they kind of clip it on to a weapon and then uh, want to go out and, and uh, be an expert on it. Doesn't always work that way. So although I'm not a, um, I've never actually, I've seen arms and OEGs and I've kind of kind of played with them, but I've never actually really used one. Uh, frankly, I just always thought iron sights were just a better a better deal. Than something like that, but for fleeting, quick shooting targets, which is what they say it's actually best used for and was actually designed for, um, you know, it's still a viable option today. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't throw one away as useless simply because it's not a modern red dot. I would say that it, it probably does have a place. There's a lot of, there's a lot of pieces of older equipment that are still very, very good, and just because they're older or because there's something else out new doesn't make them less useful it just gives you another option so i like the uh, arms and oeg maybe someday i'll i'll experiment with one i do have uh, i do actually have a retro yeah put it on some sort of retro rifle would be very very cool very very cool indeed well that's about it for you know kind of commentary and the little bit of politics and all that so we can now get to my favorite part of the podcast, which is questions and answers. And we actually, I mean, I got a deluge of them in. That's why I'm doing this uh, podcast so quickly after the last one. Uh, got got a bunch of questions in, uh, kind of relating to a lot of the stuff we talked about. So uh, here's one that kind of calls me out here, calling me out do you ever carry a 22 long rifle for defense because we talked about we talked about hey a heritage rough rider or a ruger wrangler and a brick of ammo is is better than nothing you know it's not optimal but it's not inconsequential it is consequential and so having something like that and when we looked over the uh, national Su- shooting sports foundation numbers and types of guns that were being sold 22 long rifle in pistols figured very prominently. So, do I actually ever carry it? The answer is well, there's a qualified no. And the qualified no is if I'm carrying a pistol for defensive purposes, I never carry a 22. Just I have other options, so that's what I carry. Um, Do I ever carry a 22 pistol? frankly i don't i use 22 pistol in competition and i absolutely really like it i really really like it what i really am not impressed with is you know compared to every other thing that's available would i ever really carry it and the answer is uh, i have some carry 22s but i don't really use them much um so the answer is really qualified now. now if I just want a gun if I may see a squirrel or, or some small game some varmint or something or if I if I was worried about snakes, I'm not in my current environment but I have been in the past yeah 22 is fine you know a 22 is is a good deal uh, even the little shot shells which are very good beyond a few feet are, are still you know they're they're okay um, so it, yeah a 22 is useful but I don't personally don't have much use for it. In a field or carrying kind of mode so that's the uh, that's the answer there okay here is another one which is very interesting and very controversial because now since we have a hard time getting factory ammunition and we're having a hard time getting components too but a lot of times if you have primers on hand or if you have powder on hand you can you can cast bullets is using handloads in a self-defense shooting going to get you into legal trouble? And actually, there was a reloading podcast—I forget which podcast it was—that actually talked about this. I think it was the guy from Hornaday was was the guest, and he he gave the conventional wisdom, which is no. You know, the prosecutors will hang you if you're using handloads they'll portray you as a person using supercharged ammunition all those are wives tales that go back to say probably even the 1960s and part of that part of the problem with all that is I don't know that there's ever been a case and I follow I follow this stuff a little bit i don't I don't profess to be a legal authority or have I- empirical broad knowledge of every case but I've just never heard where a self defense shooting has ever, anyone's ever talked about a handload. And if they did, let's just take a worse thing. Okay, Mr. Jones wakes up in the middle of the night, somebody's crashing through a door. So he picks up his whatever pistol, fires, Three rounds stopping the intruder who's who's you know standing there with a bloody axe or a an axe waiting to, to chop him into pieces. It's a righteous self defense shooting, blah blah blah. Um, but there's an overzealous prosecutor who brings him into court and one of the things he uses is that Mr. Jones is a ha- avid hand loader and his you know thirty eight special was loaded with hotly loaded rounds. You know. Okay. Well I think you could prove pretty conclusively if you haven't overloaded the rounds, if you're following the factory recommended load, that those would probably be less powerful than the loads available for police in many calibers. And I think you could also prove that it, it just does not outperform factory ammunition, therefore it's a non sequitur. It doesn't it doesn't matter. So that's what I would I would say with that. Now if you were using if if somehow you were using some sort of supercharged load that exceeded factory specifications, I I don't know that you could even do that safely without having the gun blow up in your hand because we have plus P and in some cases plus P plus ammunition. So if you're shooting stuff that equals plus P, I think you could very easily say this equals but does not outperform... um, the plus p ammunition which is widely available so i don't i don't think that a jury would you know i don't see where that would pertain to anything the only time i could ever see this being any kind of a factor would be if you had say hollow nose hollow point bullets that had been altered to somehow make them expand better you know if you you took a hacksaw and you cut the bullet nearly in half, put a big cross cut in it. So theoretically, it would expand. Something like that. That might that might be an issue if you can't prove that there's some uh, factory equivalent load out there. But I wouldn't um, I wouldn't necessarily think that standard hand loading and using hand loads would be a great i would be would be a problem would automatically convict you all other things being equal. I don't think it would tip the the scale of justice against you for doing that. Now why do people then say don't do it? And I th- can think of two reasons offhand. The first reason is as good as many hand loaders are, hand loaded ammunition is usually not quite the quality that you know that murphy being out there um what will happen to you is <laughs> you pull the trigger and you get that muted that muted pop because there's no powder in the uh <laughs> the cartridge that somehow somehow your progressive loader didn't charge that one and the guy with the axe comes and before you can clear the jam basically chops you up and so consequently uh... ammunition reliability and consistency would be would be an issue and that could open you that could open them for a lawsuit somebody could say look you know you advertise your progressive loader as being uh... Um, you know producing factory or better than factory ammunition and lo and behold you know look what happened and, and poor old uncle joe was killed because of that so uh, so that poor old Uncle Joe doesn't his, his heirs and, and and survivors don't sue I think people say that for one reason and uh, I think that's the, that's the biggest that's the biggest reason. Nobody really wants nobody really wants to recommend something that they can't control. you can recommend a brand of ammunition if you're familiar with it and you pretty much know it and it's consistent and it's there but to recommend a practice, that you can't control is probably unwise and that's that's why they don't do it. Um, I can't think of any other any other real reason, but I, I would say that now nowadays uh, you're probably gonna see it a little bit more, at least among hand loaders, that that hey, you may have you may have a um um bunch of hand loads in your gun because you don't have any factory loads left over for that particular firearm. And there's also there's also the deal that a lot of times we carry guns without the thought of them being used in self defense. So if you're going out on a trail hike or something and you're carrying your 1911 with lead bullet hand loads, um, you know, hey, uh, you're you're not really looking for a person, but maybe you think maybe you think that uh, something like a cougar could be out there or some other nefarious animal, or you might just want to go out there you know, go off into the woods and do some target shooting or something. Um, and therefore, if you're confronted with a self-defense situation, uh, even though it's a very small chance, but let's just say it happens, well, there you are. You're, you're using hand loads in your, your firearm because that's what you had, that's what you brought with you, and you didn't think you would be in a self-defense situation. But, but alas, there you are. So, I, I mean, you know, you could see some more things like that happening. Uh, you could see the, the larger use of hand-loaded ammunition because factory ammunition is not available. And that's going to be hunting, all kinds of other sports shooting, and, and everything else. Okay. Question number three. Cap and ball revolver for self-defense in these troubled times. Ugh, I am loathe to say that that is a good idea it is an idea of last resort and what I mean by that is if that is all you have then by all means I would I would use it I wouldn't just say oh this isn't good enough I just won't use it and lock it away somewhere uh, you can do that however um, in my experience and I'm, I'm fairly experienced with cap and ball guns There is a reliability, there are reliability issues between cap-and-ball guns and cartridge guns. There is a gap. There is a performance gap there in reliability. And so, um, part of that is just modern manufacturing. Uh, You know, I've, I've heard that the original guns actually were more reliable than the modern copies. Whether that is true or not, I'm not sure, but I do know that to get better reliability out of a cap and ball gun they've repla- you've replaced you replace the nipples they used to have treso nipples now it's i think it's called slix slix uh nipples that that go in there and they're much more reliable and the caps don't break and fall in and jam the gun like they used to so there's all that um there's also the question of you know it's suscept what's its susceptibility to moisture hydroscopic stuff, and there's, there's all kinds of stuff where they would use a little bit of wax around the, the cap on the nipple to keep, to keep, uh, humid air out of there. I, how all that works, I don't really, how that all works in the long term, I'm not sure, because I've never actually tried it, but yes, you can use a cap and ball revolver for defense, understanding that if you do it indoors, you're going to fill the place with smoke, probably, um, even the substitutes produce some smoke but black powder produces a lot so it, it is possible but it is a last resort I mean I would um, I would think that if you had something like that and a 22 um, at least one of them will work so you know you're, you're there but uh, it's not the it's not the 1860s anymore and guns have come a long way and as much as I like them and as much as uh, cool it would be to look to see the look on a bad guy's face when he's uh, when he comes up against a Colt Walker, um, I don't know. I just don't think that that's that's a really good practice. I would um, I would say any cartridge arm would actually be an improvement. So that's where I would be with cap and ball. Not that cap and ball can't kill because it can. But there are a lot of stories. If you read a lot of the old West stories, um, there are a lot of <laughs> stories about, you know, they fired the, you know, pulled the trigger and the weapon misfired. You know, um, that can happen and that would be very, very bad. So if you have one, um, maybe have a twenty-two caliber <laughs> pistol with you, or a good club, or a hatchet, or tomahawk, or something that you can uh, you can <laughs> pick up and defend yourself with. Should you get one of those very unfortunate and untimely misfires. Okay. Here is another one. Does the AR-15 M16A1 still suffer from its Vietnam reputation? And I'm assuming that means poor reputation. Uh, I think that the AR platform in general does not. The A1 does and does not. Um, you know, it had for years, and I've told this story on the podcast before, but it just a quick rundown is, um, in the 1970s, you know, you could buy the cold SP one and they were, they were fairly cheap. I mean, comparatively speaking, they were $250 you could buy. And, and that was a lot of money back then, but it's, it's still $250. So, uh, it was a, it was a, you know. If you had Colt SP-1s for sale now for $250, you'd, you'd sell them like crazy. So, you, you could buy them, but nobody really stocked them because, um, and that's when a lot of people were buying from smaller gun shops. There really weren't the... The, the big you know a sporting goods store is where a lot of people bought their guns and sell fishing rods and lures and and guns and you know mostly hunting oriented type stuff there were a lot more of those shops than there were strict you know gun shops you didn't you didn't have really the gun shop where you walked in and um, you know you saw ARs and stuff all over the place I, I remember the first shop like that I walked into it was like going to it was like going to Disneyland the first time being like seven years old you know I went in there. They had two, of you know, the semi-automatic auto ordnance Thompsons in there, and they had uh, all kinds of all kinds of stuff. But um, and and they had a couple of AR-15s. But uh, you that was pretty rare. But you would buy those things, and uh, people would scoff at them. They had such a terrible reputation from Vietnam, it, it, totally undeserved, by the way. And Colt could have. They could be one of the wealthiest firearms companies in the world had they done several things. But one of the things they should have done is the simple test that TV did, which is the simple mud test of the AK versus the AR, had they done that and publicized it, you know, they would have sold a lot more ARs. Instead, everybody got caught up in this mythos that the AK never jams and you could submerge it you could put it to the bottom of the Marianas trench and then haul it back up again and it'll still fire and you could leave it buried in concrete and it would still you just blow the dust off it and it'll still fire all these myths were still were still out there that, that essentially the AK never jammed and the AR would jam if you just looked at it wrong I mean if you if you picked up the AR it would jam you know none of that was all none of that was true Colt could have could have gone a long way to dispelling those, those myths, but they did, they chose not to, and they didn't sell, comparatively speaking, all that many ARs, although it would have been an excellent, it was an excellent gun to have in the 70s, 80s, an excellent rifle to have. So, that's, it still does suffer from, from that a little bit, um, but I think most people kind of get over it, and, and to, you know, Ammunition developmental problems that are now, gosh, over fifty years. It's probably fifty-five years ago, sixty-five. That's twenty-twenty. That is uh, that is a long time ago, and so it's it's kind of getting over that. the The generation of people who who would scoff at them are, are gone. They're they're largely they're largely gone, and so people who. They, The bad reputation that the A1, and I suppose even the A2, has was that a lot of people used it in training and, um, you know, firing blanks. And blanks are dirty. They're not service ammunition. They coat the inside of the rifle with all kinds of nasty crud and everything. So the... um, You know, the the reputation was there because, you know, blank firing adapters, they get loose, then the thing doesn't want to fire, on and on. And then, you know, if you only go to the range once a year, you know, it's kind of awkward. You're not really used to the gun that much. So I think think that contributed to the poor reputation as much as anything else. But I think one of the nice things of the retro movement is it has really kind of rediscovered how good those weapons were, how they were light how they had basically performed well over distance, and were just simple and uncomplicated. A very, very good weapon, uh, and a very, very innovative design. Really, maybe one of the best weapon designs ever, which is why it's so ascendant today in all of its more developed forms. You know, it seems like everybody, everything even if they don't call it an AR base, when you look at a lot of things, you see a lot of AR attributes um, in SCAR, the FN SCAR rifles in uh, H&K 416, obviously, and a lot of other things. Uh, You see a lot of the attributes, even if they don't call it an AR-15 derivative or AR-15 variant. So there you go. That's That's the deal there. Alright, here we have another one from a regular contributor of questions, our follower Clown Bear, who says, would the current culture still be the same today if there was no 1994 assault weapon ban? So I say the assault weapon ban of 1994 I read this question as saying how has it influenced today's gun culture and I will first start by saying I thought it was an unconstitutional piece of trash. The assault weapon ban absolutely was ineffective. It was ridiculous. And all it did was hassle gun owners. And in some places, like California, New York, and a few other places, you know, the, it's, it's effectively still in force today on the some state level. You know, in some states, it's still in force today. And, and even even worse. In California and New York, it's even worse. But if there is, this is asking if there kind of is, maybe is there a silver lining? And I uh, had to kind of think about that for a while because I've often thought, you know, one of, the, one of the silver linings of that was it woke, quote unquote, the gun culture. And it got, it was also the changing of the guard. Uh, it, it went in and it also showed how the Republicans screwed us. And I'll start with that. You know, everybody thought the Republicans are, are pro-gun and on their side. And and most of the time, but not all the time, they are. Um, the first estate assault weapon ban was in California, signed by a Governor George Duke Majin, a Republican. He solicited that. Uh, there had been a school shooting. The gun wasn't even purchased in California. But banning them in California was what they weren't going to do. It turned out to be a horrible, stupid law that... It was ridiculous, but it was initiated and encouraged by a Republican governor. The 1994 assault weapon ban could have been filibustered in the Senate. It could have been filibustered. It could have been stopped. But Bob Dole, a guy who I like otherwise, especially his war record, he's kind of a great old guy, but he brought it to the floor for a vote knowing it would pass and he and his he and his you know his party kind of vote against it but he helped bring it to the floor knowing it would pass he could have set up a filibuster and stopped it you know this is what we got to watch and you know why would you do that you know why he did that he knew that it would enrage the republican base and they would win back the congress they would win back the house of representatives which they did so you know it was done we were thrown under the bus for a a short-term gain political calculation thank you republican party thank you thank you very much but it did wake up the gun culture and up until that time the gun culture was still dominated by a lot of guys who didn't see value in what we call modern semi-automatic you know the ar-15 ak type rifles They didn't see any value in that. They didn't like them. Um, I think it was Bill Jordan got in big controversy. And Bill Jordan by this time was probably in his late 70s or early 80s maybe. Um, I think he died in 97, maybe 98. And this this is going back to 94. But... You know he said, "Hey, I don't I don't like these modern guns. They're not these beautiful walnut and blue steel creations. And I don't think that we even need them and they're, you know, forget them. Who cares?" And of course, younger people in the industry and younger shooters, well, went mental. You know, it's like, "Hey, man, you know, who first of all, who are you to really say this? And why would you why would you say something like that?" And you realize there was a changing of Tastes, you know, guns like the Glock were coming in. The Wonder Nines were in. And, um, you know, and this this assault weapon ban changed a lot of the direction that, that certain firearms would go. Uh, you know, you had another guy. Um, he actually popped off a little later, but this guy, he was an NRA board member named Joaquin Jackson. And Joaquin Jackson, like Bill Jordan, like... You know, Harlan Carter, like some of these guys. They've been a border patrol dude, and it was all part of that border patrol mystique that, you know, the NRA liked. And so they they had these old guys around. And uh, Jackson was the one who, he went on some radio show going, yeah, civilians don't need a a gun that shoots more than five shots. That's all you need for deer hunting, blah, blah, blah. I mean, obviously, talk about shooting ourselves in the foot. If you've got a guy who thinks like that, the last place he needs to be is on the NRA board. And in fact, that's the kind of claptrap you hear from the liberals: of well, you don't need anything more than this, and you don't need that. I mean, this guy was just supposedly the big hardcore dude who uh, was a you know border patrolman is basically parroting the other side. It was ridiculous. It was absolutely ridiculous. So, you know, you had this and finally that old guard changed out. By about two thousand those guys those guys were gone. Or leaving leaving quick. I think Cooper and some of these guys who, who hated the M sixteen, they they hung around a little bit, but you know, really by the time that ban ended, those guys were either they were either gone or they they had um, you know, weren't influential anymore because they were so old. So, you know, we kind of had a new generation and people who who came up saying, hey, I want a 17-shot 9mm or a 15-shot 9mm. That's what I want. And um, they realized, you know, that they were going to have to stand up and culturally defend all this. And that's where the modern gun rights movement has come, is from that 94, that 94 ban now that 94 ban had some other effects also the 94 ban changed design of weapons not permanently but you know kind of, kind of the influences are still out there today one of the things it did was okay you you couldn't have a gun that looked like an ak47 so you got the mac 90 which had you know this is where all these thumbhole stock nonsense kind of started you know these they didn't port a rifle and had a thumbhole stock. Okay, it doesn't have a pistol grip, it's a thumbhole stock. And they they would do away with things like a threaded muzzle and, and uh, a bayonet lug. If you remember, they had ARs that did not have the flash hider, you know, the A2 flash hider on it anymore. And it just had a barrel that came out and ended. Horrible looking things. But, um, you know, and you don't see them around anymore. You don't really see them around anymore. You see, uh, I guess they've gotten those rebarreled and fixed. But uh, yeah, those are pretty. Those are pretty grim looking. So you had the design of how do you get around the law? Well, you just design your way around it. You remove the offending features, but the basic functionality of the weapon is is the same. It still takes a thirty-round magazine, and on and on. In some other places, they remember they even had the. Uh, they had two that that you never see today. They had a pump-action AR-15 and a uh, pump-action AK-style rifle. Uh, both of them pretty interesting. And uh, once in a blue moon, you'll see one on GunBroker or someplace. Um, I hope that Forgotten Weapons kind of pulls out those and, and uh, can find those and do them. That'd be a lot of fun. But um, it did change the design, how to get rid of offending features. When it came to handguns, of course, now you had a 10-round magazine limit. So are you going to carry a Beretta 92 that's got a 10-round magazine? Well, you might, you know, if you have no choice. Or are you going to carry a 1911 that's got, you know, eight rounds? An eight-round magazine, nine in the, and one more is nine in the chamber. All of a sudden, the 1911 became a much more relevant Handgun because basically it, it was just under that that maximum legal limit and you got forty five caliber power the kinetic energy in your rounds of forty five were um, theoretically anyway better than your your rounds of uh, um, your ten rounds of nine millimeter and so you know that's pretty interesting and that's when the forty caliber kind of came in kind of splitting that too you know you could have a a 10 round magazine 40 uh, 40 Smith and Wesson carry the 11th shot in the chamber hey that's you know that's that's kind of a good compromise between power and and the legal limit that you can have in rounds so you know that's that that's how a lot of pistol stuff changed um, the 40 kind of came up because hey you had a cap on how many rounds you could have so therefore more powerful rounds were were better Another way that it changed design of firearms was the traditional small guns, you know, Smith & Wesson Model 36, uh, Walther PPKs, all those which had traditionally been, you know, thirty eight Special, three hundred eighty, you know, the pocket gun calibers. Uh, and they weren't bad, but now all of a sudden you started getting smaller guns that could hold 9mm. And because nine mm is in fact much more powerful than 380, it just is. And you had small 45, so you had this this uh, influx of the smaller guns that people were more likely to carry becoming more powerful and essentially, uh, by attribution, more lethal. I mean, you're carrying a more powerful handgun, therefore it's going to be more lethal. So that that changed and we still see some of that today we see very small guns in fairly powerful cartridges you know nine millimeter kind of being the standard you kind of see that the small 12 shot very concealable what are they the Springfield Hellcat and the SIG 365 you know you see those those kind of guns are out there both both very powerful and both are very popular so you see a lot of that out there as a result as a direct result of the assault weapon ban even though the ban had a 10 how they you know it was a genius whoever slipped in that 10 year sunset was a genius (laughs) because it would have been tough to get rid of otherwise although i think could have done it uh during the george w bush he he had no stomach for that ban and i don't think he would have uh um he would not have extended it had it been signed and he had a brilliant he had an absolutely brilliant comeback when that thing was sunsetting and they go are you going to extend that and he goes hey well you know congress got to send me the legislation and of course uh congress vis-a-vis the republicans due to pressure from the NRA and and all kinds of citizens did not so um you know it was a definite it was a definite. That ten years was a real lesson. It was a hard lesson, but I think that we got a lot of a younger people into the, into the sport, into the hobby, and we got a lot of more activism in. Where it's like, hey, you know what? We're gonna if we're gonna pass the concealed carry laws. I mean, I live in a place where I have constitutional carry. Constitutional carry. It, that is so awesome. You know, I don't have to take a class. I don't have to do. I don't have to do diddly. I can carry my gun on my person, in my car. You know, it doesn't have to be locked in a case and all that other kind of nonsense that that used to be out there. I can actually protect myself constitutionally. And that is a beautiful thing. And that has come out of this activism that we've had uh, since 2004. Maybe you can even argue it's earlier. Uh, I think that a lot of people have seen that you know the Second Amendment is important. I mean, it's not that long ago, we were having shoe bombers and San Bernardino shooters, all these little Islamic-inspired uh, um, terrorists coming around and doing it, and uh, you know creating these problems. And you know what? It has become, it has become something where we now we now fight back. Just, I was leaving work one day and there was all kinds of traffic diversions and everything else, a bridge near where I work. Uh, a guy got on it with an AR 15 and was going to shoot up cars. And you know what? A retired army master sergeant and a big truck ran this guy over. Uh, I don't think he had, he didn't kill him. This guy is, <laughs> I'm sure he's still in the hospital. He's pretty messed up, but he is not, he was not kidding, but this guy just, he saw him with the rifle, saw what he was doing. And, uh, as a result, this guy hurt one person, but he didn't kill anybody. But he could have. But he could have. And uh, the deal is, he got mowed down like like anything. He just he just got run over. And uh, you know that's just how that that's how that happens. Um, you know we've learned to fight back after and nine eleven helped and a few other things. But you know gun owners have learned to fight back. And we fight back against bad gun laws. We fight back against the lies. We fight back. And uh, we've got a lot of younger people that we've attracted to the hobby and to the, the gun culture, if you will. And it's a, uh, a very, very good thing. So the assault weapon ban did have some silver linings, but it was a tough, difficult, bitter ten years waiting for that thing to, to go away, just to go away. Okay, another question. Specialty shotgun shells for defense. Do you use these flechette rounds and some of these other things that are advertised? Um, and the answer is no. Um, the problem is you can't practice with these things, they're very expensive. They, they're like five, ten bucks around. You see them advertised here and there. There's, like, flechette rounds. There's also, like, two balls that have a chain chain in it. So it's like shooting two shotgun slugs that would be connected by a chain. and All of these things look quite impressive, uh, but I don't think that they're worth a hoot. I mean, uh, I think regular buckshot is about as good as you're going to get. Whatever size you want for how many pellets or a slug load. Um, that's the effective stuff these other things are too expensive and also it's difficult to practice with them because you get like the steel flechette rounds hey wherever you fire that you've now put i don't know how many come in there but let's just say it's 30 you put 30 of these steel darts out in the landscape somewhere um that's just not a good thing that's i don't i don't see that as being a good thing um you know lead lead shot just kind of you know hits into the ground and then people can come and recover it but these other things are uh, they're pretty nasty so I wouldn't use them and I just think that uh, good and I don't know the quality of the build of the shell you know is it a is it got a good primer is this thing um, a good quality shell or is it something that somebody slapped together because they know the novelty of having flechettes or Or these uh, chain rounds or whatever whatever it is that that's going to be the reason people buy it and is the is the quality of the shell good I don't know the other thing is would these things function in a semi-automatic and I I highly doubt it and uh, so they're they're probably even worse the best thing to do get a good buckshot or slug rounds practice with it make sure they work in your gun and go from there okay next question What is the status of the new Colt Python? And the answer is, I don't have any idea. I know that they're very difficult to get, so maybe they're built out of unobtainium. I don't know. But that, uh, on the uh, NSSF list, uh, the Python was either one or two on that list, regardless of the age bracket or anything. So they're wildly popular. People want them. And a few places actually flip them on GunBroker where they sell for a lot more than their their MSRP. So if you want one, I think probably there's a wait um, in line. Uh, it's going to be a while before they're going to be widely available or easily available, where you can just kind of go in, order one, and then have it in two weeks. Um, it's but they're very very popular they did kind of have some quality problems at the beginning that we talked about and you know is that thing a taurus tracker on the inside and it appears that they've gotten that squared away it appears that they have they have uh um solved whatever quality problems they had and that they're producing a much better practice product right now much better product they probably slowed down a little bit and um you know, it's still interesting. I think one of the things that just really torques me about it is you can get them in two barrel lengths, 6 inches and 4.25. And you go, why 4.25? Why Why would you have that as opposed to 4-inch like the old pythons? Well, that's so you can sell it in Canada. So thanks to Colt, we are now subject to a Canadian gun control law, which means you can't have, the pistol can't be under uh, 4.25 inches I guess that's their legal minimum so we get 4.25 inch guns and you know so does Canada because it's easier just to make one kind than two so we we kind of get their we kind of get the benefit of their law because you know everybody's going to be safer with that gun a quarter of an inch longer than what it is but you can still get the six inch looks like a nice gun. Uh, if I were going to buy one, that's a tough call. That's a tough call. I would probably, I would go with six inches. I think that's just the, you get that beautiful Python profile and, and everything. And I would actually like to get my hands on one of the new ones just to see if it's as good trigger pull-wise as the old ones. Whenever I get the deal that, well, they've they've simplified the trigger mechanism, okay, and they make it out of you know like nim or or some sort of cnc parts i'm like okay so we'll see we'll see how good it is it's my my gut feeling is that people who are honest and who have both would probably say the older guns have a better trigger pull that's just my my guess now cold has sworn they've redesigned it so that there's less stacking and it's more crisp. Oh, okay, I'll I will uh, I will say that it's not that I disbelieve them, but I will I will wait till that is that is proven, and uh, we'll see. But you know, it looks like a nice gun. I mean, I I really I've always liked the Python. I've always thought that it has this classic, cool look to it. It's one of the most beautiful design. It's one of those timeless, beautiful designs. It's like the '65 Mustang. It's you know, like a lot of other things, it is just somehow they hit it just right. And that's where it, that's where it landed. So anyway, I think that's a, uh, absolutely awesome, awesome thing that we have pythons available again. You know, I was, I was kind of heartbroken when they stopped making them. I thought, Hey, an era has ended and, and something has, uh, has gone, but it's nice to see them back. Even, even if they are not, exactly the gun that was put out of production in 2003 but they're close enough so that it it probably really doesn't matter so that's my uh, that's my take on the new Python and uh, I haven't heard of any quality problems since a couple of initial ones so I'm hoping that whatever that is was was corrected and uh, it's now good to go well that's it for another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you like it is. And as always, you can put comments on Podbean, which is our primary podcast carrier, or you can also uh, email me at kbmakel at aol.com. That is kbmakel at aol.com. Yeah, how how long has it been since you used an AOL address, huh? <laughs> I just realized I've I've had that thing for oh, it's been about at least fifteen years, you know, back when AOL was actually a real company. I guess all they do is have the uh, have the uh, email thing now because nobody dials up to AOL anymore. So anyway, that's it for this podcast. And until next time, this is Old School Guns out.